Thank you, Christy. You know, when I heard this for the first time during our first service, I said to Christy, I took away two things. You know, one is it really is a cool story, the way that that story is told with the kids. But more importantly, it just reminded me I have no creativity in my body. I want her to, like, stand here with that thing and make sense out of what I'm about to say. So I think it might be helpful. Well, Michael's not here with us this morning. He needed to be away, and he asked me if I'd just fill in for him in his absence. So uh, let me just welcome you. Uh, if you've joined us via live stream, thank you for being with us. You're here in the room. It's good to see your faces. Uh, Michael gave me a bit of a project. He actually gave me an assignment. What could a friend do but give you an assignment, right? So he, he asked if i choose a passage and speak to the topic of wisdom and faith. Not just individually how we interact from a wisdom and faith point of view, but how it might impact Stonebridge uh, in our church. So I'm going to do my best to do that with you this morning. Uh, let me start with a summary statement. Uh, it comes from Billy Graham. I kind of like it. You know, he's credited with making this statement to summarize this entire topic. Here's what supposedly Billy Graham said. I have read the last page of the Bible. It's going to turn out all right. That's an interesting summary, isn't it? When we get caught up in life, that's not how we see it. You know, Michael credits me very often with being the guy in the midst of uncertainty that says, it'll be okay, God's got it figured out. Uh, I don't know why I think that way. I think some of it is just self-preservation. You know, that I don't want to deal with the other possible option. Either way, when it comes to wisdom and faith, doesn't it come down to just this one simple idea? How does God work? Uh, that's what's on my mind this morning. We're going to take a look at Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 43, to kind of unpack that a little in the sense of a first century church as they came together. I'm going to take a few minutes before we do that. Just to, But you can open your Bibles and get to that place. I hear the pages fluttering. That's what I love about this church. We actually use our Bibles. I want to talk a little bit about these two words. What do they mean? Well, let me start with... Another quote from John Calvin, you know, he writes an entire treatise on faith, and he makes this statement at the beginning of that, which I think is fairly direct and understandable. John says, faith is like an empty open hand stretched out towards God with nothing to offer and everything to receive. What is it that we're receiving once we have faith? I would contend it is God's wisdom. God's wisdom help us, helps us to understand who he is, how he works. It gives us the ability to respond to life's circumstances. Maybe we might even say our suffering and sickness to respond properly with faithful thoughts. You know, in our English Bibles, the word faith is pretty common. In the New American Standard Translation, it's used over 350 times. And every time it's used... It describes man's belief in God and Christ. But it also attaches to that kind of an outcome. As a result of our faith, how should we conduct ourselves? You know, both of those things are prevalent in that. The word wisdom is used a similar number of times in our Bibles. It's especially prominent in the Old Testament. You know, there are actually two entire compositions focused on it. Proverbs and the Psalms. You know, in Proverbs and the Psalms, those 
documents encourage us as readers to pursue wisdom. And they describe it this way, increase in wisdom. You see, faith and wisdom are connected in the way God works. It requires him working in us in both ways. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 11 says it this way, I have taught you in the way of wisdom. You can't have wisdom without God as the teacher. That's what the writer of Proverbs says. Well, if we flip over into the New Testament, just from a summary point of view, we're all familiar with chapter 11 in Hebrews, a chapter about the faith. Verse 1 simply says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Here, the translation from the New American Standard is also helpful. If you look in your annotations, if you were back in Hebrews, you know, those little sidebars that give us all the cool answers, it suggests that in the first half of this statement, we could replace the word assurance with the word substance. In the second half, we could replace the word conviction with the word evidence. Let me give it to you that way just to see if it helps unpack it a little. It would read this way then. Faith is the substance of what we hope for. It's real. It's substantial. There's meat to it. We may not see it in the moment, but as we look back at our lives and see how God has worked in our lives, it's really real. Well, the second half would read like this. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. Evidence is one of those legal terms, right? You know, you got to be able to have tangible evidence to prove something, to prove that it's real, that it happened, that it's authentic. You see, here, with that word substituted, we get a clear picture that faith proves out our lives. It may be what we hope for, but what comes to us comes from the faith that we have in Christ. A little later in the New Testament, in James' letter, in chapter 1, verse 3, he says the testing of your faith produces endurance. Another idea here, there's a benefit that comes out of this faith. He calls it endurance. Now, that's something that's long-lasting. It's something that you've put effort towards. And there's an there's a outcome from it that's a positive thing for you. But notice in the next two verses, in verse 5, James connects this wisdom and faith idea together. He says in verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives it generously and without reproach, and it'll be given to him. See, James explains that faith enables us to overcome life's trials because we know God is supplying what we need in the moment. Now, sometimes we want that moment to be sooner, don't we? God acts often to give us what we need in the very moment that we need it and not a moment sooner. You see, what I'm trying to build a picture here around is that faith makes God the focus. It's not us. It's not our intellect. We can't figure it out on our own. He is the source of our faith, and it is him that gives us wisdom. And that wisdom recognizes that God's at work right here in our midst now. He's concerned about little things, and he's concerned about big things. Let me out of the gate make this statement to you. That way you can decide whether you want to tune me out yet or not. 
it would be impossible. Let me say that again. It would be impossible to ask God for wisdom if you didn't believe in God. I mean, why bother? That's what these texts are teaching us. Well, this morning, I want to just kind of hone in on one little tiny aspect of this principle in Acts chapter 2. I think there's some practical advice there that we can take. We can even apply it here in a broad-based way at Stonebridge. But before I do, I want to use my life as an example. I want to try and illustrate what I've just been telling you. Let's call it personal testimony time for me. Uh, Let me start first with letting you know a little bit about me. You know, Patty and I are blessed with 11 grandkids. Yeah, hard to believe, huh? And they're all here in Nashville, so we get to be around them a lot. They range from age 6 to 19, I think. Somebody will probably correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, let me say this one other thing, too. If you're working the math, we started having kids when we were 8. Okay, just saying, I'm really not as old as you think I am. Well, here's, here's what I want to share with you. One of my grandkids jumped up in my arms one day. Now, it's not necessarily unusual. We got some little guys, and grandkids like you. You know, I think God built the DNA in them that they should love their grandparents because the grandparents don't have to be the enforcers, right? You know, we can be the ones that just, like, make them feel good. Well, this uh, granddaughter of mine jumps up into my arms, looks me right in my eyes, grabs a hold of the bottom of my chin, and as she's looking in my eyes, she says this, Papa... Why do you have a neck like a turkey? (laughs) You weren't supposed to laugh at that, you know? Oh, what's that got to do with wisdom and faith, right? I mean, that sounds kind of silly. Well, here's my point. And I would ask you just to think about this for a minute. When I make God the focus, when he's the central thought in my life, He helps me see things I might not otherwise see. Now, isn't that kind of a definition for wisdom, that idea? You know, a simple comment from a grandchild can be used by God to teach me something. So what did I learn? Well, I learned maybe I shouldn't take myself so seriously. Maybe it humbled me a little bit. You know, you might say it humiliated me, but hey, I got a turkey neck. What am I supposed to do? You know, it is, it is what it is. But it also taught me I have flaws, right? I mean, who'd have thunk? I have flaws. Hard to believe. Why did I tell you that story? Because I think it's a question for all of us. I, I want to make it a question for you this morning. Do you see the little things that God is doing every day in your lives? I mean, do you really see them? Well, how about this one? Are you learning from them? Is there something that you're taking out of those little things I would assent to you there is a rich blessing in that that we often miss. But that's not the end of the story. At least that's not the end of my testimony. That's a little thing. Let's get, let's get a big thing on the table here. 47 years ago, God granted me faith. Yeah, I guess that does make me old, doesn't it? How do you go about doing that? What did that work look like? Well, I want to share that with you for just a minute. See, God brought Sonny and Mary Petrusky into my life. Uh, And that was Patty's life as well. Neither of us were believers. 
you know, after 10 years of marriage and three kids under age six, Patty and I had pretty much given up reconciling anything about church. We didn't even talk about it. She had come from a traditional Catholic family, and, you know, I guess you would say I came from more of a pagan background with a little bit of Methodist sprinkled in on the side. I didn't have a clue. I mean, that's the simple answer. Well, at this point in time in our lives, uh, Patty and I were building a new home. We were, like, physically building it, you know, pounding nails, sawing lumber, putting stuff together and hoping it wouldn't fall down. That was our life on the weekends. Well, Sonny and Mary would take our three sons to church with them while we were out building a house. Now, they were believers, but at the time, Patty and I didn't even know what that meant. I mean, that was kind of a new idea to us. Well, after several weeks, the boys came home on a Sunday afternoon and joined us, and they asked if we'd go to church with them. Well, here's where the story gets really kind of interesting. Sonny looked at Patty and I and said, if you won't come three weeks in a row to our church, you are not invited because it's my church. Interesting form of evangelism. <laughs> but you kind of got to know Sonny. He was a heavy equipment operator. You know, on his side, he laid brick and stone. You know, you put whatever picture in your mind you want of Sonny. Let's just say he wasn't bashful. And Sonny knew us. And he knew if he challenged us, he knew if he challenged me specifically, I'd take the bait. You know, I'd jump right at that thing. Are you telling me I can't go to your church? We went, Patty and I both. Pastor Rock Dillman, the Allegheny Center Christian and Missionary Alliance Church in Pittsburgh, right in the downtown area. Young guy, strapping six foot one, D1 basketball player turned pastor. I didn't even know that was possible. You know, I had a whole different view of what pastors look like. Those three Sundays, Rock opened the scriptures. He exposited them just like we do here at Stonebridge. And at the end of every service, he gave the gospel. Well, it wasn't long after those three weeks, Patty and I came to faith in his office. You know, we got baptized on a Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. service. Why am I telling you this story? Because it's transformational. That's what faith is about. It's about transforming us. You know, I wrote this note here. We weren't looking for a relationship with God. I got to tell you that. We just weren't. I mean, I was worried about what the windows were going to be in the house. I wasn't thinking about God. He was looking for us. You know, sometimes God works in ways we just don't see coming. But man, when it comes, it changes everything. Yeah, you think that might be the end of the story? I'm a long-winded kind of guy. There's more. How about this? Remember two Sundays ago, Michael's friend Jim Traficant, when he was speaking? Do you remember he made a quote from a pastor? And he said that marked his life. The pastor was from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. You know where I'm going with this? Yeah, that was Rock Dilliman. That was the same guy that led Patty and I to the Lord. Now, I want you to step back for a minute and think with me. I want to tell you kind of the bigger story on how I think God works and why I am always amazed at how he works. I met Michael 
really for the first time in Chicago at a reception when he took the position as president of Moody Bible Institute. Now, Patty and I lived in Chicago uh, because of my work at McDonald's. Now, I want to be really clear. It was at a reception. It was just like one time. I shook his hand. I said hi to him. He didn't have a clue who I was. And I had never met him before. I had no idea where this Michael Easley cat had come from. Five years later, and we had not been in touch with each other. Five years later, the Easleys are in Nashville. Patty and I are getting ready to move to Nashville. Now, we had some dear friends, Erwin and Rebecca Lutzer. Erwin is the pastor at Moody Church in Chicago. And they suggested that we contact Cindy about finding the house because she was a realtor. And that's, it wasn't until then that I even met Michael Easley, let alone this Jim Trafficant guy, right? I'm trying to connect the dots for you so that I can make an interesting point, hopefully. Let's fast forward. If you were with us at Stonebridge two years ago, you might remember the last surgery that Michael had, where he had to go to Cincinnati to have some work done on his neck. Well, the day of his surgery, I'm in Cincinnati, along with some of his friends from Virginia who are close to him, and we're waiting while Michael is in surgery. One of those guys is Jim Trafficant, and that's the first time I met him. You know, we sat and compared notes on our own personal faith journeys, and that's when we connected the dots that Rock Dilliman had had an impact on both of us. How does this stuff happen? How do you write these stories? You know, can I say that God is at work weaving together his plan in ways we can't even understand. And sometimes it's because he doesn't want us to understand it yet. He wants us to trust him. That's why I paused on this. That's how God teaches us to grow our faith. Sometimes it's to wait. Sometimes it's to amaze us. Both of those things are true. Psalm 46, verse 10, frames it this way. Stop striving and know that I am God. I like that. Here the psalmist reminds us that believing in our own efforts alone doesn't get us to God. This verse isn't suggesting we don't work in our relationship with God. As a matter of fact, the word striving is in italics in your Bibles, if you were to look at it. And that indicates that it wasn't in the original text, but it's there to help us English speakers kind of understand what's being communicated in the English language. Personally, I think it, it creates a bit of a problem for me. Let's strike it for a minute. Stop and know that I am God. Psalm 46.10. Would you agree with me? I mean, think on this for a second. Isn't there something significant about stopping everything for a moment? The psalmist says, stop. <coughs> kind of awkward, huh? Makes you think, doesn't it? Stop everything for a moment. It forces us to consider who God is. It might draw our minds to think about how he's working in our life at that moment. You know, I remember my mother saying to me as a kid, she had this great saying, think before you act. She also used to say, count to 10 before you get angry. I told the other group this morning that I never understood that. I always thought it should be, count to 10 and don't get angry. 
But I don't know. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Think about the psalmist. Stop. I mean, there's implied in that. Think. Turn your mind on. Focus your thinking on God and be reminded. Not just that he exists, but you aren't him. Something to think about. Psalm 111 verse 10 comes at it a little bit of a different way. Verse 10 says, the fear of the Lord, or our reverence for God, starts the process. It's the beginning of wisdom, the psalmist says. I mean, here's something to think about. We can't understand without first acknowledging God as our God and his sovereignty over us. Psalmist basically says, you want wisdom? Then center your life on reverence for God. Start trusting him in the everyday things, not just the crisis when they surface and you lean towards him to get help. And doesn't that, by definition, require faith? See how these two things are kind of connected? I want to suggest to you that when we began Stonebridge three years ago, it was one of those steps of faith. And I know there's a number of people here that weren't here with us then, so let me just clear the dust for you if you haven't heard this. There was no formal plan for a church. There really was no master strategy. I mean, I gotta give you the bad news. It really was a conversation Michael and I had while we were drinking coffee one morning. And three weeks later, this church began. I mean, that's an act of faith, I think. Or it's a bunch, two stupid guys that had no plan. Uh, you know, you take that where you want to go with it. How about this? God gave us a temporary place to meet. I mean, out of the graciousness of Dave and the Ramsey Solutions guys, I mean, three years later, we're still sitting there. They haven't kicked us out yet. I want you to think about how God works, how he moves through people. And, and for those of you that weren't here, it wasn't like we could just pull off Sunday by deciding we wanted to. I mean, God brought a little band of people together to pull it off. You've heard about, really, the Reeves and how they get behind producing what happens here on Sunday morning and how much, how much effort they put in it. But there were others. There was Bert and Sharon Sanders. You know, Bert's a physician here in the Brentwood area. All he cares about is the health and safety of people. I mean, from the get-go, he led our security team to see that this was a safe place. When COVID happened, he was the guy advising us on what we needed to do to keep you all safe when you came here. And Sharon, she was at the helm from the very beginning as a prayer. She led our prayer ministry. Jason, you know, he's up here on Sundays. I can tell you that story some other day about the miraculous way that Jason ended up here joining with us. And his wife, Heather, who helped us with so many administrative things at the beginning. And of course, there was Michael and Cindy and Patty and I. I, I don't want to spend too much time on that. Let me just say it was a step of faith. There really weren't any preconceived notions. We had no idea that three years later, we'd either be still in this room or that we'd need to have two worship services to fit the number of people that come. None of that was clear in our mind. You know, I'll confess for me, I'm still learning. Uh, I must be a slow learner because God just keeps bringing more examples my way. And I'm going to fill you with one more because it's so important to me 
that we come to grips with how God works, and we don't get to orchestrate it. You know, two years before Patty and I moved to Nashville, we were involved in planting another church with a friend of ours. That one was even crazier. My friend got a phone call from two older gentlemen that lived in a town, DeKalb, Illinois, west of Chicago, home to the University of Northern Illinois, 40,000 students. These two older gentlemen were the last two living guys. They were elders in a Baptist church that had closed. He called my friend Steve and said, would you come out and talk to us? So Steve did. One conversation, it kind of went like this. They had an auditorium that seated three to 400 people. They had a full-size gym. They had classrooms from when that Baptist church operated its own school. And they said this, if you and your friends will come and plant this church, you can have it. No debt. Who does that? I would tell you, God does. He does it by working through the hearts of people. You see, for me, I'm learning in my own life that nothing should surprise us when it comes to God. He's the guy driving the bus. We're just sitting in the seats. It's not my plan. It's not yours. It's not Michael's. We actually, Michael and I actually talked about this morning a little bit, and I'm going to credit him with me going down this road for a second. You know, we regularly remind you that for the two of us, this was a step of faith that we called Stonebridge. It was always a legacy opportunity for the both of us. We kid around about it being the three to five year plan, right? Now, what does that mean? Well, we dreamed of a beginning that God would bless and that we'd pass it on to a new generation. Boy, he sure has blessed us the last three years. It's kind of amazing what happens here. You know, we don't have a staff. You guys got that, right? Everything that we do here is you. You know, whether it's our children's ministry or the security team or the sound team. I mean, I know we're a church now because we have a coffee team. (laughs) Right? Yeah. What's a church without a coffee team? Now, I'm going to admit, it's not perfectly orchestrated. I mean, if you were talking to me, you'd probably tell me the things that are falling through the cracks, the stuff that you would like seeing done. But wouldn't you agree with me? It's pretty amazing. That's where you say yes. Wouldn't you agree with me? It's pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now we can talk about Acts chapter 2. That's all the backdrop. If we can't connect on what faith is, if we can't see God through those eyes, it's going to be hard for us to understand the amazing thing that happens in Acts chapter 2. When Luke recorded this event, he gave us a blueprint for the church about living by faith, about applying God's wisdom. Let me say what it isn't. It's not a corporate strategy. It's not a vision or planning process. It doesn't have budget details or drawings for a church facility. These things are necessary, but if we don't come to grips first with how God works, just becomes a work of men's hands that has no redeeming value. Luke reminds us that it's only faith that transforms people. So we're going to put up on the screen here verses 41 through 43. I'm going to wake you up for a moment. Would you read these verses with me, please? Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 43. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to 
Now, if you weren't with us that first time we met as a church, that very first Sunday, I read from that passage and we talked about it. And then Michael taught us on the Lord's Supper and we celebrated it together. We've got history here with these verses and I don't want to miss that. And it's good for us as we're praying about the future, which is going to include, you know, new young leaders going forward. Somewhere down the road, another teaching pastor that joins us that's younger than Michael or me. Let's dig into the storyline. So verse 41 says that about 3,000 people have come to faith. So for me to really do justice to that next verse, I want to just rewind for a second and take a look at that storyline. So if you are in your Bibles, look at Acts chapter 1. You know, many people are gathered here in Jerusalem. It's the time of the Passover season. In verses 4 through 8 of chapter 1, after Jesus' resurrection, he comes to the disciples. He tells them to wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit before their evangelistic, you know, messages start to reach beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the remotest parts of the earth. Luke also tells us in that first chapter that the disciples return to Jerusalem. And as they do, they gather there to pray. They're praying for wisdom on those next steps, but they're also praying to figure out a replacement for Judas. And from those prayers, Matthias is chosen. Now, the disciples are all gathered at the same place. They're in a private residence. Luke describes a noise. It's a rushing wind. Sounds like one, but it's really not. It's not a wind. It's a noise, but it fills the whole house. This is where it gets kind of pretty amazing. He says, but beyond just hearing stuff, then they see these flames, and they look like their tongues, and they're touching people. Let me just simply say, this is the fulfillment of Jesus' prophecy that the gift of the Holy Spirit has come to them. Rather than dig down into those details, let's just move on from there. In verses 23 and 24 of chapter 2, after this amazing event, Peter takes center stage with the other 11 apostles, and he begins to speak. Here's what he says. He charges the men of Israel with the death of Jesus. And then he credits that Jesus' death was always God's plan as was Jesus' resurrection. And then in verse 36, after he's described more about their role in it, he makes this statement, that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. Now I want you to remember, we've got 3,000 people who have just come to understand that Jesus was Messiah for whom they had waited. That's their faith story that we're going to see in verses 41 through 43. But there's a second thing that happens here. Peter says that he's also their king. This is another promise fulfilled from the Old Testament because David was promised that there would be a lineage that would come from him and there'd be a forever king. This is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant as well. The capstone statement is in verse 38 of chapter 2, if you're following with me. And here Peter says, repentance for the forgiveness of their sins would mark this transformation. And after that, they would be baptized. Now jump back to verse 42 for me, with me. This is where it gets kind of interesting. Now just remember, we've got 3,000 people that just came to faith. Luke describes this group of people as people who were continually devoting themselves. That's his words, not mine. I find that to be interesting. You know, devotion carries with it the idea of endurance that we talked about earlier. 
It's something done continually that requires effort and time. If I'm devoted to something, I'm working at it. But I also believe in it. You know, I'm not going to be devoted for something that I think is a farce. If I'm going to make that kind of an investment, I must be certain. And that devotion is faith that comes from believing in Jesus Christ. I would define devotion this way. It is an enduring commitment that is unwavering. There is a certainty about it. What am I doing lingering on this one phrase? I mean, we've got to get through this, right? There's a simple answer. It's the primary question the text puts before us, you and me. What does our devotion look like to Christ? That's the question the text is inferring to us. Do we continually devote ourselves to him, either individually or as a church family? I don't really mean that to offend you as a challenge. I don't know, maybe I do. Uh, but more than that, what I, what I want to say to you is that Luke is laying out what is to become an answer for us. He's going to give us the resource to understand how is it that we become continually devoted. And he has four things that he wants to say. So let's look at them. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Now, at this time, the apostles' words weren't viewed as Scripture. I mean, Scripture was the Old Testament. So the apostles were taking the Old Testament and declaring through the Old Testament that Christ is Messiah. The apostles preached Christ. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24, but we pe preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness, to those who are the called, both Jews and Greek, Christ is the power of God. He is the wisdom of God. There's something for us to take away here, and it's pretty straightforward. If we are not continually devoted to us preaching Christ to ourself, to our family, to those that we are involved with in our community, then we run the risk of telling the world that men's words are authoritative, not God's. It is something to consider. Second thing is they were continually devoted to fellowship. You know, too often we fall trapped, I think you'll agree with me, to defining fellowship as friendship, right? You know, we're all friends here. Friendships can be fleeting. Few of us have friendships that have lasted a lifetime. True fellowship isn't solely based on the similarities that we have with each other. Remember the people described in this text. They came from a variety of countries. They even spoke different languages. Luke tells us they came from as far away as Rome. They were Jews and Gentiles, and some Gentiles that had actually adopted the Jewish religion that were called proselytes. Interesting. Luke says they were continually devoted to each other. They didn't have a lot in common, did they? What's the bond of their fellowship? It was their faith. You know, one of the things that strikes me about fellowship is our church family. Man, at the end of this service, I can't get you folks to leave. I have to turn the lights off, you know, just to get people to leave. That's a sign of folks that want to have community together and want to spend time with each other. But, you know, something that really does strike me is when crisis comes to our family. We're dealing with one of those right now with the Comstocks.
You know, I had a person reach out to me this week that doesn't know the comp stocks that well, who happens to be in the IT industry. Now, those of you that know Mitch know that Mitch has a small business that he operates himself in the IT space. This person reached out to say, hey, I'm in that space. I know there's some other guys in our church that are. Can you get me in touch with Misty? Because I think I could band some guys together and maybe we could be of some help to them. I mean, is that amazing? That's fellowship. It's not just friendship. I mean, this fellow didn't know the Comstocks that well. Well, the next thing is the breaking of bread. They were continually devoted to the breaking of bread. I just want to highlight this because it's connected to fellowship. Obviously, at this time in history, this takes on a special role because Jesus instituted it at that Passover meal before his crucifixion, right? This is important. This is a new thing for the New Testament. But I want to focus on the activity. You know, to participate together in this required a commonality of faith. They wouldn't do it if they didn't have that faith in Christ. This is an extension of true fellowship. So whether it's the Lord's Supper here on a Sunday morning, in your small group, or in your family, here's what I want to just remember. We are declaring a unity with Christ and other believers that can't be broken. The last thing that we're committed to is prayer. We talk a lot about prayer here. We're not there yet. I would suggest that continual devotion to prayer marks a healthy church. Gives us opportunity to speak personally with the master of the universe, our own thoughts. You know, when Jesus taught the multitude how to pray, he said a couple of interesting things. He said, pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees in secret will repay you. But he also cautioned the multitude. He said, don't be as the hypocrites. I would just simply say, God is asking us to come to him with pure motives, to come to him directly in a one-on-one relationship using our words. You ever tell your kids, use your words? God is saying to us, use your words with me, because I know your heart already. So let's not kid each other. I was counseled by a missionary once from China about prayer. By this time, she was in her 80s. She had spent a number of years in prison in China. Let's just say she knew a little bit about prayer. Now, her comment was directed to my kids. You know, just that kind of a focus. Here's what she said to me. Totally rocked my world. Wayne, if you're not praying for your children, it is possible no one is. Ooh, tell you what that did to Patty and I. We started praying with each of our sons every night individually before they went to sleep. And we made that a pattern in our lives. Let me turn that on its head for a minute. I'm probably breaking the rules here. I have some sentiment for you. What if, what if you're not praying for our church community and nobody else is? We talk about the future all the time, a new facility, what God's going to do with us sharing the gospel with others. How about we start by praying that we might receive wisdom from God and make the best possible decisions? Okay, I started this morning by talking about I'm the guy that's got it figured out, right? It's all going to be okay. Here's a group of people that did have it figured out, and they were praising God for what he had done for them. I want to suggest four things we can take away that I can just run through quickly. 
that I think are important as we look to the future. The first is God's wisdom is accessible to us who have faith in Christ. You know, when I think about these folks' faith, they were a pretty broad band of people who God had joined together. The wisdom they had came through the faith that they had. We can learn from them. We can be encouraged by them. Here's the thing that I worry about. We have access to God's wisdom, but we don't ask. That's what James was concerned with. Or we don't take the time. Either is a problem. It really is simply a matter of building a discipline in your own life of asking God for wisdom. Do you see him as the God of everything? Do you see him as the master of all that you might humble yourself and actually ask him for the answer instead of marching off on your own? That's what these folks understood. Well, the second thing, devotion to God's word will increase wisdom in us. You know, God gives us a resource, his word, to accomplish point number one. You know, these people were focused. They had a prime objective. They kept the main point, the main point. Luke calls it continual devotion. It was unwavering. You couldn't get them off the mark. You want to increase in wisdom? You want to be more wise? You want to make better decisions? I would suggest you learn this discipline from them. Founded on faith. I have to say this, because it's heavy on my heart. Hear me on this. You cannot prevent the world from teaching you theology. Let me start again. You cannot prevent the world from teaching you theology if you don't pursue God's word and his theology. You just can't. That's what these folks are teaching us. Here's the third thing. Community with other believers strengthens our faith. Luke calls it fellowship. He describes the relationship that they had with each other as having everything in common with each other. I would just simply say don't miss the blessing that comes from growing together. Growing together in Christ with other believers. You know, we need each other. It's God that designed it that way. We haven't made that up. Being part of a community group encourages you. They care for you. There's tangible things that comes from it. Here's the fourth thing. Praying opens the door for God to give us wisdom. Praying opens the door for God to give us wisdom. I love the New American Standard translation for these folks in that verse on prayer. It it simply says you could translate this as they were the prayers. They were the prayers. Interesting idea for us, isn't it? You know, their world had changed overnight. Amazing what Scripture describes for us there. Obviously, they had courage because they were about to become societal outcasts, even from their own families for believing in Christ. I make this observation. Praying signals that you're willing to submit yourself to a holy God that you don't have it all figured out. It indicates for you that your faith is genuine because you want to pray to that holy God. And it puts God's wisdom at your fingertips so that you can win the day. 
I would just suggest, remember as you do that, that sometimes God says no. Sometimes he says wait. But man, when he says yes, it's amazing. We need to be faithful no matter what his answer. You know, Luke finishes this little three verses with this statement at the end of verse 43. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. You know, it's not the awe that you see when fireworks go off or when there's a great football play. It's something different. The NASB suggests that this part of this verse could be translated, and fear was occurring to every soul. Fear was occurring to every soul. Not the kind of fear that stops you in your tracks and you don't do what's right. It was reverence for what was taking place in their midst. Everyone was devoted to the apostles' teaching. Everyone was together in fellowship and the breaking of bread. Everyone was praying together. There was agreement and unity in everything. Climax of this narrative is in verse 44. Luke says, and God was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Isn't it kind of funny? The more we stretch our faith, the more God uses our faith. Just kind of seems to be the pattern. Well, back to that beginning when Michael said, hey, Wayne, would you talk about wisdom and faith for a bit? I don't know if, how good a job I've done with that, but I want to confess to you, I'm learning. You know, God's teaching me with every passing day. Here's what I want to say to you. I learn the most when I stop. You see, when I stop, I see things I might otherwise miss. I make decisions I might otherwise not. And that honors God because I'm expressing reverence for him. My two cents, God's not done with me. He's not done with you. He's not done with us as a church. We don't know what he's planned next, but here's what we want to be true of us. We want faith to be our guide. We want wisdom to inform our steps. I agree with what the writer in Hebrews says in chapter 11, verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. 